Lord, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for your word. I pray, God, that as we dig into this challenging and hopeful word, Spirit of God, I pray that you would do something in our hearts where we have a posture that is ready to receive what you would say. Pray, Lord, that right now that this word would not be something that we wanna send to somebody else, something that will help us with talking to somebody else, that this word would be good for us. That whatever your, what your word is for each of us in our particular circumstance in this very moment, God, we trust that you will speak, that you will move. We trust that you will open up the eyes of hearts today. The Lord, we draw near. We repent. We trust you. And we pray. Amen. So this morning, we are in the fourth chapter of James. We have been in this James uh, study for the last th uh, four weeks. We're finishing it up next week, and we've been looking at this book of James, which is all about faith in action. James says, don't really listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. He says, we should have a faith that is alive. And because our faith is alive, it causes us to do works. And, 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 and out of it flows these good works. And, and, and he's challenging you and he's challenging me and he's challenging the church in the ways that we live. And today, as we look at this, I believe James is asking this question. Have you ever had a moment when you were like, Maybe it was with your kids, or maybe it was with some students in your classroom, or some employees, or just some random stranger off the road, and you just feel like saying, who do you think you are? Who are you to talk to me like that? What kind of authority do you have? And I believe here in James, we're kind of having a moment like this, as he's got something happening in the church, We've already felt this tension from chapter three as he is addressing the church and how we talk and the, and the danger of our tongues and slander and gossip and all that. And as I was looking at this, I think the question really is not so much about who do you think you are, but whose do you think you are? It's way more than your own identity. It, it's related to who you relate to, to who, hear this, who you belong to. And James is challenging the church as they reflect on some fights and some quarrels and some division happening in the church. He's saying, whose do you think you are? Why is there this conflict happening? Why is there this, these issues happening in the family of God that, that, that are causing all of this heartache? The question is not who you are, but whose. You are. We're going to be asking this question. And here in James, he's really highlighting what there's these three themes in Scripture that come up against our 
confession that we belong to God that are fighting against that, that are saying, no, you belong to these other three powers in life. We talk about these in theology class, about the, the enemies that we are fighting. As we ask the question, whose do you think you are? As maybe you think about some conflicts in your own life. Maybe even right now you may be thinking about an irritation in your life. Maybe someone in our faith community that has, has hurt you. Maybe someone in your family. Maybe someone that you, that you love dearly who has betrayed you or someone that you feel bitter against. And, you, and you're asking this question, whose do you think you are? Recognize in that moment, there's this battle going on in, with you. And the first thing that James get at, gets after for you and me is he's saying, as you ask this question, whose do you think you are? There's this battle of flesh versus God. Is this about your own flesh? Flesh in the scriptures is about your heart, your desires, who you are, your ego, your pride. Is it about you and, and, and your world? Is the, are you the center of the universe? Or is it about belonging to God? Look at what happens here in verses one through three. James says this, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. That your passions are at war within in you. You desire and, and do not have, so you murder. There's a lot of debate in the commentaries about, is he talking about actual murder? Could be. We do know that in that context there were zealots. There was, we, we do know in the history of the church, especially in those times, we even know from the, the story of, of Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul, and it says that he was breathing out murderous threats. And so there was this, this probably spirit of this zealous, like either you're with me or I'm gonna kill you kind of idea. You get the sense though in reading this, this is probably more metaphorical. That people are, in, in the ways of Jesus, right, in, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, if you hate your brother, this is like murder. Because you murder. Because you covet, and you cannot obtain. You want something, so you fight, and you quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. And then he says, actually, you ask, and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your actions, if you, as you think about that, he's saying there's something wrong with the way that you're asking God for wisdom as you're, as you're in this faith community with these quarrels and these issues that are going on among you. He's once again inviting you to examine your heart and to ask yourself, whose do you think you are? If you just look back at verse 14 of chapter three, he gets at this, he says, you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. He's calling the church out and saying there's something in you as we wrestle with this question, something deeply within you, this pride, this jealousy, this envy that is winning. And, and we know this struggle. We felt this struggle. If you're honest, and we're all honest, right? 
We've all had those moments where as we could confess with Paul, one of my favorite passages in the scripture is when Paul has like this honest, I would call it like a CR moment. Been to CR, we're constantly confessing our struggles. <laughs> he says this, he says, I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. Anyone felt that before? Because I do the very thing I hate. You ever had that happen? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but, but sin dwells within me. In my flesh, there seems to be this struggle. There seems to be, I want to do what is good, but there's something, this, this sin, this, this, this thing that has a grip on me that's causing me to act out in ways, to speak out in ways, my own selfish ambition, my vain conceit, my, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of these things inside of me that is stirring up in me and I, I do not do what I want to do. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You feel this? Later on he says, oh, what a wretch I am. And oftentimes as we think through quarrels, fights, Anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, it oftentimes is rooted in this first battle that I seem to be giving into my own flesh. That my own desires, my own need to win the argument, my own need to let that person know that what they did to me is unforgivable. My own need to be the best. That flesh within me, we all have. And James is writing to the church and he's saying, whose do you think you are? Are you your own? Are you the one behind the steering wheel in your life? Maybe this is not as challenging or maybe you feel like, you know what, this is, I feel like God's been working and moving in me, but. James doesn't stop there, he also says, well maybe this is not so much about the flesh within you, maybe it's also a question of the world versus God. Perhaps, he says, maybe it's not so much your flesh, but maybe you're giving in to the things of this world. The things that the world says that, that, that should govern what we run after in life, our, our vision in life, the things that we speak about. We have the flesh, but now he says, okay, what about the world? Look at what he says in verses four and five. And, and notice the, the switch here. James has been talking the whole time. He uses this familial language. He says, brothers and sisters. It's this, it's this relational, almost like, like, like beloved. He's been talking to the church this whole time and it seems like he's getting to like a boiling point. 
I have this with my children. It's like I've been trying to like lovingly, patiently, like help you to resolve this conflict over, you know, who gets to play the PlayStation. But at some point I get to like this boiling point. And I don't know that I use the language that James uses. He says this. You adulterous people. (laughs) I'm gonna try that, boys, next time. He says, you adulterous people. He sees the, the fighting in the church. He sees this misuse of power and position, and he says, all of a sudden, he goes from brothers. He says, you adulterous people. Now, this seems very extreme. But this is actually a theme in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this is a a, a motif of of God's relationship with his people. There's a whole, there's an actual prophet named Hosea where there's this whole relationship of of this truth that in, in, in the story of God, we are the wayward bride and he is the faithful husband. We are the wayward bride and he is the faithful husband. We, even though he has faithfully led us, protected us, provided for us, cared for us, graciously, we turn our backs and go in different ways for the world. And so when James is saying, you adulterous people, it's like a hyperlink all the way back to this Old Testament theme that everybody would know, oh yeah, This reminds me of the story of of when Moses was up on the hill and he's getting the Ten Commandments and he comes down and he's just had this this time with God and he has the law for the people of God and, and then he comes down and he sees them worshiping a golden calf. You, you adulterous people, you've, you've fallen, you follow these other idols, these, these other things that society, that the world says, or the things that you should follow, and he's saying, why are you doing this? You are not your own. Whose do you think you are? Whose do you think you are? Do you not know, look at what he says here, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. He's speaking of this, and when we use the word friendship in the scriptures, it's, it's an intimate relationship. It's not talking about your Facebook friends. It's not talking about your followers. It's talking about these, an intimate relationship, and he's saying this relates to chapter three about, about, you know, about this, this hypocrisy in the people of God. It says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This word of jealousy, once again, an Old Testament theme that one of the attributes of God is that our faithful heavenly father who's the husband, the faithful husband of the bride has this righteous, jealous love for his people. And he yearns jealousy for the spirit that he has placed within us, the spirit of of saying that that all is made right, that that, that you are a new creation. He yearns for that fellowship, and we break that fellowship when we fall for the ways of this world. When we fall for the commercials, 
of this is what you should run after in life. Of, of, of this, is, this is how, when, you, when it comes to that, that argument, when it comes to that person who has hurt you, this is how the world says to interact with that person. Because you fall to this. And James is calling once again you, and he's calling me to ask this question, whose do you think you are? Reminds me of Romans 12 verse two says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, we say changed around here. By what? The renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's this, there's this battle within us. And as you ask yourself this question, who do I belong to? Am I a slave to my own flesh, to my own desires? Am I, am I a slave to the world? Or there's this third piece that we don't like to talk about as much that James get, gets after. It's this piece that is way outside of who we are that the scriptures tell us is very prevalent and all around us, and it's the devil. It's evil spirits. It's spiritual warfare. As you think about whose do you think you are, there's also this acknowledgement that there's also spiritual forces that we don't see that, are, that there's a reality that we are battling. And so there's this, also this battle. I'm not just battling my own flesh within me. I'm not just battling the world that is telling me to live a certain way. There's also an evil, powerful, spiritual beings that I'm battling. And we have the devil versus God. Whose do you think you are? Look at what he says here. In light of this, he says, verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see this dichotomy here. He's saying either you're with God or you're, there's, this, there's this attack of, the, of these evil spiritual forces. You can see this theme. Remember in chapter three when he's talking about the ways of this world and he calls them demonic? I think way too often in the comfort of our Western life, we miss the fact that Satan and his minions and evil spirits are active waging war against the people of God. It tells us in 1 Peter that the devil is like a roaring lion looking for those to devour. It's just to be sober-minded. And I imagine James, as he's writing to the church, as his heart is being grieved with division, probably with some sort of slander. He also recognizes this isn't just about you. Satan is trying to tear apart his church, the church of God. And we need to recognize that as well. And this has been the story, this isn't just a new story. These three enemies that we battle, as we ask the question, whose do you think we are, they go all the way back to the garden. It seems to me that everything typically goes back to the garden. Because the enemy, Satan, as he tries to attack, we, we, we think that, that you know, it, it's gonna be something really obvious, but the scriptures tell us that he is the master of lies. He is the master 
of speaking lies and, and deceit into you. And so as we think about the division or the, or, the, or the broken relationships or the ways that we give in, there's this outside spiritual force that is speaking lies to us, telling you, yeah, you're absolutely right. You should never forgive that person. There's this evil spirits that are, that are speaking lies to you, telling you, yeah, you're too far gone. You could never be forgiven for that. You should just kill yourself. Evil, evil that is speaking lies, that is attacking humans, that, that, that wants to kill and destroy. And we see this all the way back in Genesis 3. Just briefly, look at this. It says, now the serpent was more crafty. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, just follow along. I don't have it on the screen, so... Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any true tree in the garden? Even his lies are half-truths. God has placed Adam and Eve in the garden and told them they, they couldn't eat of, they could eat of all the fruit but not from one tree. And he speaks these half-truths, these, these lies. The woman corrects it. Oh, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It's, it's not a big deal if, if you just, maybe just dabble with that. It's okay if, it's not gonna hurt anybody if you just go and look at that on your own in your private time. You deserve that, that, that drink. You're stressed. Go, go have, you know, go, it'll be okay. You, you've earned that. And we have these attacks on us. And then we read in the story. So when the woman, look at what happens here, saw that the tree was good for food. Desires within her. That it was a delight to the eyes. There was this envy, this, this, this need to have it. She took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. This is our origin story. And part of our confession is we believe that ever since then, we've been longing. We've been struggling with the flesh and struggling with the world and struggling with these evil spirits that speak lies to us and we've been falling. And we've been falling. And we see it in the Old Testament story. Because you see in Genesis chapter three, God says that, that one will come who will bring hope. That yes, the seed of, of the woman will, 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 will be bitten on the, on the heel by the serpent, but he will crush his head. And we follow the whole Old Testament story and we're, we're looking for one who will come. We're looking for a better Adam. We're looking for one who, who says no to the flesh, who says no to the world, who says no to the serpent. And we think we might have it in David, King David. Oh, but then there's Bathsheba. And we think we might have it in these other kings, but nope, they fall. 
You might have it in King Solomon, and he's so wise, and he's so, but then pride comes. So what does God do? What does God do? What is the story for you and for me as we reflect on this, as we confess, I struggle with the flesh and the world and the devil, hear this, be humbled by grace. Look at what James says here as we think about this struggle. As we join in Paul saying, I don't understand what I do for what I hate I do and what I want to do I do not do. Look at what he says here. I have this circled, uh, squared, underlined, and highlighted in my Bible. Verse six. We're overwhelmed at at Satan and his minions. We're overwhelmed at, at our flesh. We're overwhelmed at the temptations of this world. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Does his grace run out? Does God's grace say, well, you messed up again? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, it tells us in Romans and Corinthians that there was an Adam, but there was a second Adam who came, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is God himself who became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, when he was baptized, he identified with you and with me and said that I am here, I am a priest, I am, I am gonna be one that represents humanity. And right after his baptism, what happens? He goes to a wilderness. And in that wilderness, who shows up? A crafty serpent, Satan. And Satan gives him three temptations and every single time, Jesus wins. Every single time Jesus wins, and that's a foretaste of what will happen on the cross when he dies, perfect, righteous son of God on the cross for you and for me, taking on our sin and giving us his righteousness so that when he says it is finished, we can be humbled by that. And this is a total theme in James. James is saying this this theme that is all the way back in Proverbs that the people of God must be a humbled people of God. As we were talking to our teaching team and Eddie said, this is about not about saying like, I'm humble and proud of it. (laughs) It's actually not a statement saying, Logan, you be humble. Have you ever tried to be humble? Have you ever been like, you know what, today I'm gonna be the humblest person around. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. Humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's not shame, it's not guilt, it's just thinking less about yourself. As we say in Christ, be magnified. And we are a people of the cross. We are a people who have a savior who came and and as we look at him, we are humbled. You see what the difference that little D makes? And the call here, I believe in James, is for you and for me to be humbled by grace. To sit in church to say, Christ, be magnified. 
to say, I don't know, I don't deserve this truth, I struggle, I don't understand what I do. In Romans 7, Paul confesses this, but then he says, but thanks be to God for Jesus. And that's our confession. And this seems to change everything. It seems to, to, to be, remind us that yes, we have these enemies and we have our flesh and we have the world and we have Satan, but the scriptures tell us that Jesus wins every time. That he is the king, that when he died on the cross, that not only did he, did he pay for our sins, but when he resurrected, he defeated death once and for all. He defeated all those struggles, all that challenge, all those battles. And so we are a people who are, it's not about being humble, it's about being humbled. I believe the humility comes from that. As we ask this question, whose do you think you are? As you struggle, maybe today you're struggling and there's some relationships that are a little fractured. There's some bitterness in your heart. As you ask this question, whose do you think you are? I would tell you this, what is your only comfort in life and in death, church? Say this with me, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's a statement of a humbled person. That's a statement of what it looks like to be a people that, that are living with our faith in action because of our Savior King. As I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of this wonderful song by a guy named Matthew West. He wrote a song called Grace Wins. I love it says this, I wanna read these lyrics to you as we reflect on these truths, as we think about this battle between ourselves, between the world and, and the devil, and even between when you walk into a room and you're thinking about what people says, he says this, in my weakest moments, I see you, shaking your head in disgrace. I can read the disappointment written all over your face. Here come those whispers in my ear saying, who do you think you are? Looks like you're on your own from here, because grace could never reach that far. But in the shadow of that shame, beat down by all the blame, I hear you call my name, saying it's not over, and my heart starts to beat so loud, now drowning out the down. Doubt, but I'm not down, but I'm not out. Woo! <laughs> Says this. Look at this. There's a war between guilt and grace, and they're fighting for a sacred space, but I'm living proof. Grace wins every time. Every time, church. So be humbled by grace. Grace wins every time. God's grace is Jesus. 
Faith in Jesus as your personal savior and resurrected king, it changes everything. It's what changes us. It's what's gonna speak into the quarrels and the division and the selfishness and the pride and, and all the things that are happening because we're humans and we still fall in and we fight. But Jesus, by his grace, will continue to heal that in us and in you. What a difference a simple little D can make, amen? Let's be humbled by grace. And as you're humbled by grace, look at what James does here. As you're humbled by the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, look at what happens and look at the so what's for you and I. This is the, this is the starting ground. This is what we live in. We say Jesus changes everything. I'm changed. And because of that, here this church, the first thing that James wants you to know is not repent. That's, that's coming. The first thing he wants you to know is draw near to God. This is a story of scriptures. God's people, when they sin, God says, draw near, come to me. Look at what he says. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands. Look at the language here, you sinners. Purify your hearts. How do we do that? Faith in Jesus. You double-minded. He says, let us, look at, now he's including himself in here. In Hebrews 10, verses 22 through 23, we see the same theme. It says, let us draw near with a true heart. And how do we draw near? In full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us, what do we do? Hold fast to the confession of our hope. That's Jesus, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Beloved, as we struggle with our flesh, as we struggle with the world, as we struggle with dark evil in this, time, in this place, draw near to God. Remember the gospel welcome when Brian came up here? And he said, hey, we, we could walk away and be like, that's a sad story. We're all sinners in need of grace. We get grace. You don't have to do a bunch of things to, to, and to then be qualified to draw near to God. It is because of Jesus we draw near to God. So no matter who you are or what you've done, draw near to God. But hear this. As you're humbled in grace, we draw near to God, but also there's this important piece that we should repent with lament. We miss this oftentimes. It's all rainbows and butterflies, right? But there's this theme in scriptures of, of owning our sin. Hear this, of feeling sorry for the cosmic treason that we have committed. Look at what he says here. Now notice, first he says draw near to God, then he says be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself, because you're humbled, before the Lord and he will exalt you. Second Corinthians says it this way, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's also a piece to our story of feeling sorry, of feeling the weight of our sin. 
and repenting. As you think about your decisions in life, do you talk, do you talk about sin as sin, or are you more like me and just say, mistakes were made? There's a piece to owning my sin. And as you own that, finally hear this, church. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. At the end here, seems to be that James is wrapping up his conversation to the church. And as he's talking to them, it seems to be that people have started to, to judge and condemn and, and to put themselves in the seat of the judge, of the judge. And James corrects them at the end here and he basically says, don't judge, you're not the judge. Because you are a humbled people. And for some of us here, maybe there's some bitterness in us. Maybe there's some, some, some ways that people have hurt me, some ways that people have wronged me, and they're not sorry. And James is telling the church, no, you are humbled by grace. God's the one who does that work. And right after Romans 7, it says, there is, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as we reflect on this as a people, let's trust that Jesus, our King, will continue to do his convicting work, that the Spirit of God will continue to do his convicting work among us, amen? And let's be humbled by grace. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for these reminders today. I pray, God, that as we reflect on this, as we think about the call, the call to be humbled by your grace, to be humbled by your cross, as we step into communion, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to do a work among us. And that, Lord, we would taste and see of all that you invite us into. Have your way, Father God. In your name we pray, amen.